0: You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My guest today is John Day, who teaches English at King's College London, and is the author of Homing on Pigeon's Dwelling and Why We Return. His diary in the current issue of the LRB is on hoarding. The piece began life, I think, as a review of Possessed, Rebecca Fulkov's cultural history of hoarding, but grew or accumulated or accreted into a a more personal account. Um, Hello, John, and thank you for talking to me today.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I suppose
0: the first question is, has your dad read the piece?
1: He's not read the piece, no. I'm, he is, oh, I suppose he will imminently. He's um, He's aware that I've written it, partly because I was badgering him with questions about where he'd rank himself on the, the clutter image rating, the um, the scale used to diagnose the severity of a hoarder's problem. But he's aware he has these tendencies, so I think it's not a surprise to him that they've been written about.
0: Yeah, I mean, do you want to talk a bit about those images? I know it's slightly odd to have a, maybe this is not the right medium to be talking about pictures, but talk a bit about what those photos are and, and what they're used for.
1: Yeah, so um, the, the clutter image rating is a, a series of, is a diagnostic tool developed by psychiatrists to, I guess, produce a more objective measure of hoarding, because obviously it's a, a fairly subjective diagnosis. And so it's a a series of images of different rooms with different levels of clutter in them that were produced by two clutter researchers, Frost and Sketeke, who I think got their graduate students to, to, to fill a room up, to fill various rooms up with loads of objects, bits of paper, random things, and then gradually took away proportions of those objects and took photos along the way. And so they have nine images of each room, the most clutter field of which is level 9 and they say requires sort of professional intervention with with multiple professional partners to to deal with and i think most people would consider 1 to 3 where the rooms are fairly you know there's objects lying around there's neat piles of stuff but it's they're not completely bare they're not minimalist rooms to be a kind of normal baseline amount of clutter and then beyond 3 it gets into states that you might consider require some sort of intervention but of course it's still completely in the eye of the beholder and one person's clutter is just another person's stuff and that's what i found interesting thinking about this piece and and indeed talking talking to my dad about about his own relationship with his with his things you begin
0: the piece with an sort of itemization of what's on your own desk quite a nice list of things Uh, um is is there more or less stuff on your desk as we speak now there's less stuff on my desk well there's
1: there's there's still piles on, of stuff on my desk but i don't think they're quite the same things um you can't see them can you but yeah it's it's a bit more organized i mean i've i definitely have inherited my dad's fondness for kind of strange knickknacks looking around me now i can still see some of the things i mentioned in in the introduction you know the fencing foil is still here the the pigeon skeleton and the the lock picking lock but um they're all a bit neatly arranged and i think that's part partly perhaps the difference between a hoarder and a non-hoarder at least as i see it would be that for a non-hoarder The things you have need to be present to the senses in some way perhaps whereas a hoarder's very happy or my dad's very happy to have stuff that he knows is there somewhere in a box at the back of a room and the memory of it is almost enough to sustain him and you know even more extreme than that lots of his stuff isn't even in the house anymore he sort of shuffled it out to storage centers or to friends with barns where mice slowly nibble it all to pieces so it's kind of the idea of of the possession still being present in his life even if not sort of physically accessible that's important to him i've never had that relationship with my stuff although my house is pretty full and you, i mean you mentioned in the piece that the ideas
0: that a hoarder and a collector and an archivist and these different ideas i mean one thing that i thought of it's not quite the same but the, in the movie speed that dennis hopper's character at one point says after he thinks he's got all the money he says i'm not crazy poor people are crazy i'm eccentric and is there an idea that, I mean, some of the people you talk about in the piece in history, who if you have if you have a lot of money in a large house and you fill it with stuff, you're not a hoarder, but if you live in a small flat and you fill it with stuff, you are. Is there some?
1: Yeah, I th- I definitely think there's truth to that, isn't there? I mean, if you have a lot of stuff and you have room to. To sort of display it, then that takes on a slightly different you take on you have a different relationship with that stuff. And other people do too. They can they can come and poke around in it and admire it and so on. And a clutter filled Victorian drawing room in a stately home is quite a different thing to a clutter filled semi in a um, where you can't kind of get to the walls and, 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 and see things. So I do think there's a there's an element of of space and time as well. I'm interested in the way in which an unorganised hoard is a hoard, whereas an organised one is an archive, even if you never see it. And you know that's true of libraries too. And and it made it, in the piece I write about the the idea in Falcos' book that there's something sort of very modern about hoarding as a as a psychological problem and and indeed a sort of material problem. Partly just because of the the cheap availability of stuff and how that's changed our relationship with with the things we choose to hoard. And I think that's that's true of those kinds of other hoard that you mentioned the the archive and the library and the museum indeed which are all collections of things but as soon as you have time and space to to organize them they take on different resonances and and I think most most hoarders if they have a a good working I mean one thing that's extraordinary about my dad's relationship with his stuff is that he does sort of know what he has and where it is it's not lost amongst the 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 other stuff it's to him there's a it is an archive I guess he can find stuff quite easily and so that lack of order that other people perceive in his in his things isn't true for him and perhaps completely changes his relationship that's maybe one of the reasons he denies that he is a hoarder because there's a system to it
0: but maybe an archive has to be accessible to someone else if only the archivist knows their way through it if someone else can an archive someone else can come in and and, and explore it and find our way through it. Well,
1: that's true to an extent, isn't it? But I'm sure you've been to archives or indeed libraries where a specialist librarian is needed to point you in the right direction or to explain how the card index system works or whatever it might be. So I think, yeah, that, that's the ideal of the archive, isn't it? But to make it readable, to make it legible to, to anyone else, but it's not often the reality. I mean, would you, I mean,
0: thinking of museums, I mean, was John Soane a hoarder or was he...? <laughs> Hoarder, hoarder with space. Hoarder with space. Or, you know, or the Pitt Rivers Museum. Or collector, those, Yeah, yeah <laughs> collectors. But you did, I mean, in the piece, you do talk about some of these historical people who clearly were hoarders.
1: Yeah, I suppose. Well, the, the most famous hoarders are, I suppose, in the literature, certainly in the psychological literature on on hoarding as a, as a pathology, are the Collier brothers, who were New Yorkers who, in the mid 19th century, were famous for their indiscriminate collection of. Of objects and stuff and they lived together then they were also hermits and that the two often go hand in hand to a certain extent um no one really knows whether that's because of a kind of embedded shame of the act of hoarding that that makes you a, a local landmark in the way the Collier brothers did become one of them was blind and, and the other brother looked after him and, and that might have been another reason for their for their isolation but they they for a while that you know they weren't seen they they went missing and um eventually the police broke into their house and Traveled through all this stuff, like miners climbing over the piles, and 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 discovered in a corner of one room Homer uh, Collier, I think, dead of starvation, up because, and then a few months later they found his brother's body, and he'd been killed by a booby trap that he'd set to to stop people stealing from his hoard, and 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 then his brother had starved to death. Um, so it was this very tragic story, that I suppose was the first hoarding story to really get prominent. Media attention newspapers wrote about them, and I think the a collier house is still how social services in New York refer to problem hoarders, so it 's sort of entered the lexicon at least in in the states uh, and and that became they became the archetypal hoarders and again, I think it 's sort of striking that they 're traced to this post industrialization nineteenth century moment where you could collect pianos and I think they found sort of seven pianos and various cars and and also strange objects in in their house and and of course, as soon as objects accrue in that way, culturally and socially in cities in particular, people can start collecting them in a way that... I mean, I don't know if there were these kind of hoarding tendencies in the Stone Age, but presumably not many people would have noticed anyway if you collected 10,000 pebbles in your cave.
0: Um, I mean, that... would I mean, interesting thing about I mean, going further back in history. I mean, it, the word the "hoard" it's an Anglo-Saxon word, and there's but also the idea of the word "hoard" that the, you know the words that an Anglo-Saxon poet could draw onto, yeah, or a dragon's hoard. So it does, you know, the idea of you know, I mean, it's not Anglo-Saxon because it's it's twentieth century, it's Tolkien, but the idea of the dragon in the Hobbit sitting on his hoard of gold and that, and and possessing a hoard, and that idea that somehow having the hoard sort of corrupts your somehow corrupts your brain that it makes you. I don't know that it became pejorative but it's not clear that it was.
1: I think it I think it always has had well at least as as far back as my inquiries took me has had slightly con negative connotations in the sense of of the sinfulness of a love of money or a love of accumulation for its own sake being in the judeo-christian tradition anyway considered you know slightly sinful but but yeah you're right that I think this this removing you know However, you might view Smaug. His behaviour as a as an economic agent is fairly rational. You know, to sit on your pile of gold is is not kind of mad behaviour, even if it's un you know sort of socially unacceptable or deemed sinful by the church or whatever. And I think there's a there's a transition that that I find really interesting that I do think coincides with with the rise of hoarding as a as a distinct as a distinct psychological pathology, which is to do with the kind of objects that are being hoarded and their 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 valuelessness as as society perceives it, and that, that that kind of split that occurs between utility and value ever more in the in the nineteenth century when these kind of beautiful and labor intensive mass produced objects that do have a lot of use, you know why not hoard seven pianos? You never know when when one might come in useful, but it seems to kind of shift the the meaning of the word away from that that kind of stark, austere, sinful connotation to something that 's slightly comic and eccentric and and mad. And I found that shift interesting in in the literature and it certainly reflects my own experience with with my dad whose stuff he's not a collector you know he doesn't he doesn't buy things that in the hope that they will accrue value over time he doesn't he he loves the objects for their for the for themselves for their intricacies for their for the stories that they accrue and for the materials they're made of i think in a lot of cases he's got this obsession with tin toys he buys a lot of you know mechanical tin toys and no one really knows why, you know, he did it long before he had, he had children, let alone grandchildren. So it wasn't just a kind of excuse to indulge. And, and he still has these things. And they are kind of lovely objects and slightly silly. But um, yeah, they they have no use. <laughs> they have no use value. I mean, one of the, I mean, one of the sort of
0: the classic items that you'd, I mean, if you were making a film set of a hoarder's house, is piles of newspapers. Isn't it the idea you don't throw away the newspaper? And the, but the idea of that of the newspaper is something that it's ephemeral. It's a daily paper. You have it for a day, and then you read it, and then you chuck it out. But what happens if you haven't finished reading it? I mean, it's you know there are lots of jokes about people needing to get under Review of Books binders <laughs> because of all the <laughs> piled up unread, or read, I should say as well. Many pe- <laughs> copies of the LRB. But the idea that the idea of not wanting to chuck out the paper. Yeah, and it's certainly it's not the same. But my I mean, my dad, who's still you know they. Generation, you still read a physical newspaper at the end of the day. Things well, I haven't read the paper, so at midnight I'll be sitting down at the kitchen table to read the paper because you've got this thing. So there is that idea of value, but on the other hand, you, you know, or next day's chips as it once were. But the idea of these things that can just be
1: chucked out, and when does it become? when When does the newspaper become valueless i suppose is is a really interesting question i mean for my for my dad he he worked as a as a as a broadcast journalist a radio journalist and his research was conducted largely through buying magazines and newspapers and 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 cutting you know clipping them and and stacking them in piles arranged by themes so there was there was a sort of practical at least starting point for his archiving slash hoarding tendencies when it came to newspapers that he would arrange things based on potential programs or you know stories he might investigate but of course very quickly that tendency to to keep things means that you you, you never get to the processing you just pile up the newspapers the pile that they they stack up and you and and something exciting might be might be in there so I can't shut this particular pile away I haven't I haven't processed it and actually that's true of course I mean a friend was telling me about um recently he was helping a, a another a friend of his who who had been a organized um musical festivals and had been a prominent conductor i think of sorting out his father's home after his death and they simply they they couldn't clear these apparently you know worthless piles of newspaper from everywhere because there's a good chance that in every one you you suddenly stumble across you know a letter from Stravinsky or whatever so the idea that there is gold in Damdar Hills when it comes to those piles of papers especially in a hoarder's house is is literally true Um, and I suppose another thing that what you just said raised is this this transition that I do I mean one reason I don't have that relationship with papers that my dad has although I share some of his other collecting tendencies is I think because I'm much more confident in the digital archive so in the case of the lrb much as i um love them accumulating slightly i'm much more willing to part with them than my dad ever has been because i know that actually the you know searching on the internet the website is a a very useful way of getting straight to that article you half remember but
0: is there i mean the online question i mean of course is there a sense if you people who have 50 or 100 tabs open in their internet browser is there a the way the hoarding tendency moves online because it I mean, in terms of video cassettes and I mean, I still have. It's not hoarding, but I've chucked out a lot of my old tapes. But the very early cassette tapes that I bought, a child, I mean, I've kept now five and Michael Jackson's bad because you know like they're the first tapes I bought. So, but they have a kind of a. I mean, in a way, that's. I mean, that's just a straightforward sentimental value, I guess. So it's. But the idea, in a sense, when there is less and less need, in some senses, for material objects because or some kinds of material objects because so much is online now. But what happen, what happens when the internet goes down if you've got your I mean is there I mean just think about it, is it is there the sort of the bunker mentality what happens when when civilization collapses I still have all my stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean to a certain extent and and of course people who say that are right, you know, I'm I'm I so my father always tries to claim that he has complete runs or half complete runs of sort of obscure 70s magazines that he's convinced. Are important to preserve as as yeah cultural documents in their entirety, and he thinks he's got the only runs of them. You know, often obscure photography magazines from the seventies. and And um, you, have you ever have you read Double Fold, that Nicholson Baker book about him buying up? I can't remember what the library is, but they were kind of getting rid of their newspaper holdings, and he bought it and had this warehouse full of newspapers because he sort of thought this is this is the ephemera we have to be preserving. And his argument there, which I think is a good one, and it's one that my dad. Um, also subscribes to is that you know reading on paper is not just different as a as a physical activity, but the experience, the, the the literary experience, as it were, is very different. The stuff's presented to you in a slightly different way. Often meanings are lost when you when you transfer a, or you know encounter a piece on the LRB website. Although that does very I, 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 uh, <laughs> does a very good job of you know linking to the letters associated with it and stuff, but there are some things that can't be the smell of paper, of course, that can't be replicated. So I you know I'm not um, complacent about the losses involved of moving online i'm 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 just sort of reporting that i think my, my 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 relationship with those things is slightly easier than than my dad and his generation but of course we are doing exactly the same thing those of us who who do store stuff on the cloud I, the amount of photographs i take we all probably take and never look at again is extraordinary isn't it it's for every now, now you know now we don't run out of space on our phones you're sort of lured into taking five shots of every scene when you you know, you would have thought a lot harder about it in the day of days of, of of film, and you'll never look at that stuff again. You know, we all become crap with his tapes, never never getting to the end of the of the of the digital hordes we've accumulated over a lifetime, and and I do find that a kind of frightening proposition, especially when you think of the amount of you know energy that must be used to to service those those hordes, even though they're invisible. So I don't know if you know one system is better than the other. Did you keep with the tapes that you got rid of? Did you? I mean obviously the individual tracks you can probably find online but were they were they mixtapes that you'd made yourself was it important to preserve the
0: No some some mixtapes
1: I kept some mixtapes as
0: well and also yeah also but things like recording you know recording John Peel just which then again you think oh I'm nearly I'm nearly actually everyone (laughs) thousands of teenagers across the country have the same tape for that same John Peel show (laughs) I mean one of the things that everyone who's read your piece I've talked to about it is like talks about the hoarder in their own life or the and I wondered is my dad a hoarder I mean in a sense he's yeah I think my mum wouldn't let wouldn't let him be so it's pushed to the edges of the house but if you go in the loft or the garage or the shed there's (laughs) the edges of a hoard that could be sort of know being kept at bay somehow but at least in the sense your dad he can say but here's my stuff and you can see it whereas your virtual horde as you said it's invisible and there's
1: yeah well exactly that's right and and it's come to a head at times in our lives when when that space has been needed for 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 other things I mean there was always when we were children the ritual of my dad cleaning his his room for us to have Christmas lunch in, and it was this kind of months-long process that that honestly started about now in the year end of august he start getting deeply depressed and anxious about the fact that he'd have to find space for all the things that were filling he's got you know he's got claimed the biggest room in the house for himself as his study when when they moved in so it was always the, the place we had to gather on christmas day and yeah it, it took it honestly sent him into a deep depression and then the index of the year afterwards was how long it took for him to sort of recolonize the the space with stuff often only a few weeks and it was all back in there and the other time it's happened which i mentioned in the piece is is, is when my grandmother was near the end of her life she she was going to come and live with us and so he kind of had to finally move lots of stuff out of the house um and find room for it and in the end his strategy was to to put it in a big yellow storage or you know equivalent one of those um you know private storage company places where and he dumped a, a, a van load of stuff at this place and then never looked at it again for the next 10 years he just knew it was there i think it kind of gave him comfort it reminded me of you know those you know those the i think is it the south sea islanders who use ray stones as a currency those vast stone wheels that take a lot of labor to produce and therefore have value in in, in the exchange economy but are too uh, impractically huge to move, so you just sort of leave them where they've been made, and 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 ownership is exchanged by the stories you tell about the stones. They're used in wedding dowries and
0: a bit like NFTs,
1: a bit like NFT, yeah, exactly, exactly. They're like material NFTs, and I think and, and apparently, often you know, if you if one of these stones is lost off a ship during a an ocean passage, it won't cease to be in circulation it will just be remembered that it's at the bottom of the sea there and and its ownership will maintain yeah they're like exactly like nfts and i think my dad's relationship with his stuff during that period when it was kind of spread out a bit was was very similar he knew it was there it was comforting to him that he could potentially go and visit it but but he never chose to do so in in a decade or so and now he has these little silos of stuff sort of around the country and friends who live in the countryside who have barns space available or whatever he'll occasionally turn up with a van and And leave a few boxes with them and never visit again and i quite like that idea of his his hoard being dematerial in the cloud in a sort of physical sense
0: this is the lrb podcast if you enjoy listening to it you'll probably enjoy reading the london review of books to subscribe from just one pound per issue go to lrb.me forward slash listen that's lrb.me forward slash listen or click on the link below and, I mean the question of why some people are hoarders and others are not I mean as you say in the piece it's not known because I mean sort of it might seem obvious to think oh well people who didn't have a lot when they were children feel the need but that doesn't seem to be true that there's no clear correlation
1: yeah I, I, as far as i could tell yeah that doesn't seem to be the case actually quite strongly not the case um and that that was always my mother's explanation for, for for my dad's love of stuff that he was a you know child of the war and lived with rationing and so as soon as he as soon as he was able to accumulate stuff he he went for it and i suppose that's probably a kind of boomerish experience in in the sense that it it tallies on to the rise of consumer goods more broadly and mass production. And, and so maybe this is an an explanation that is particularly acute for that generation of hoarders. And as we all age and, and our children decide that the stuff we have is not just stuff we like, but is a hoard, we'll have to come up with other explanations for it. But yeah, it seems, I mean, it's both very common. I mean, lots of, lots of people are, are hoarders. It transpires between two and 6% of the population could be considered either by themselves or by their loved ones to, to have a problem with hoards. It's also quite a public problem. Since I've been writing the piece, since since I've been thinking about this stuff and since I wrote the piece, I've noticed a lot of houses in my local area, probably, you know, one or two within 500 metres of my house that look to be inhabited by hoarders in the sense that the, the, the front gardens are full of stuff that hasn't changed in the last few years and it's clearly not building material, but it is stuff that might be used for one day. Classic hoarder stuff, you know, broken bikes and pallets and things. but 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 an explanation as to why i mean there's yeah there's there's some evidence that it's that it has a a heritable if not a genetic component in that often people with hoarders in their close family also become hoarders and there again there's some evidence that there's a a kind of neuronal component to it too but i think i can't remember the the name of the psychiatrist whose theory this is and sorry i should have looked it up but there's 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 a kind of um evolutionary psychological explanation that it's a kind of misfiring or misaligned nesting instinct that it's a kind of accumulation of stuff standing in for what you know birds do when they're building a, a nest or, or, or rabbits in a burrow and it's it, it's the com it's the kind of psychological comfort provided by accumulation that is that is misfiring in those that hoard and 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 for the rest of us that's just interior design
0: but i suppose there is that sort of the or you know squirrels storing nuts for the winter or whatever or nothing you don't talk about the kind of this aspect of it in the piece because it's a bit different but the kind of the panic buying of toilet paper at the beginning of the pandemic
1: yeah well i i should have i should have written about it shouldn't i really um and i suppose the reason i didn't is because i because i don't think of that as quite the same thing and certainly that's not the kind of hoarding behavior that that my father's ever displayed or that i've ever felt succumb to is isn't about that kind of market driven scarcity thing it's 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 a much more personal thing about the relationship with the objects that you come across for me anyway and and, and of course there's i'm sure there's 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 lots of hoarders who would who would argue that their the stuff they're accumulating is is practically useful and that's and that's the reason they're doing or might come in useful one day and that's true of a lot of the you know certainly people who hoard sort of materials and 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 wood and, and things like that which again it's never been my father's style particularly although you know the the newspapers i suppose you could say were his equivalent of that but yeah that i mean covid did turn all of us into hoarders one way or another didn't it but again i suppose that would be i would think of that more as a slightly hysterical reaction to rational market behavior right well, the fear was that you wouldn't be able to buy newspaper then uh, buy a toilet roll the next week right so
0: two things come well i'm not too sure which one take one first but the, the neurological question um you talk about the story of phineas gage
1: yeah well he, he you know he's the the famous case study and origin of of so many you know neuromaniacal explanations for human behavior that he's kind of always invoked in relation to but he was a yeah a railway worker who suffered a traumatic brain injury when a railway spike was driven through the front of his his head and his brain and and suffered all sorts of dramatic personality changes and 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 as i say he's he's often invoked in relation to you know neurological origin myths in one way or another but but apparently he did develop an affection as his doctor said for for pets and objects including the 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 railway spike that had gone through his brain which his doctor said was his constant companion thereafter so he he kind of carried this that particular object around and also collected animals and and other things i think so um i don't know how much active research has been done on you know how i don't know how replicable that kind of a study would, would be anyway but there do seem to be distinct brain differences between those who hoard and, and those who don't that are kind of standardized across the class of the hoarder which is of course intriguing
0: and, and on the question of it being quite public there was the that tv show about 20 years ago life of grime narrated by john Peel, in fact and mr trebus who sort of became very famous from that for a while from that program and who had endless arguments with I think he lived in Crouch End so was it Haringey Council would come and try and take his hoard away and he wouldn't let them and the, which I mean I guess in the 19th you know, the brothers in Harlem it didn't happen until after they died that the authorities came and tried to take it away but the the council would come and try and clear out his house and he wouldn't let them and had these constant and quite upsetting I think for him arguments with the council.
1: Yeah I'm sure it, I'm sure it would be deeply disturbing and traumatic to have an external organization or or indeed your family sort of telling you that the things that seem so significant to you and indeed form part of your identity need to go one way or another. And I mean that's I don't know that programme, I'm afraid. But we have this obsession, don't we, with cleaning things up as a as a spectator sport almost. There's there's lots of T V programs about how clean is your house or, you know, super cleaners, where someone comes in and transforms the horde into something recognizably more Domestic and fragrant and clean and and I think I don't I mean and and I suppose the Mary Condo decluttering phenomenon is part of that impulse too this this idea of of your sort of emotional and psychic well being being tied up with the amount of stuff you have and and how you relate to it I think is a I don't know what it means for us but I I am slightly disturbed by that by it becoming a spectator sport I mean it is interesting of course to to see how other people live and to see how how they can relate to their things. But when it becomes, I think when it becomes associated with sort of moral goodness to to live an ordered and clean life, that becomes far.
0: Well, it's heading towards kind of fascism, isn't it? That idea, the sort of social social cleansing, yeah. social yeah. cleanliness, and the um. But as but also, the I mean, as it were, if <laughs> obviously it would never happen, but Marie Kondo were to come. And go through your dad's stuff with him. I mean, what is her question? Does this bring you joy? If not, check it out. Presumably his answer would be, well, yes, it does.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think so. And the book is remarkably kind of, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's really only got that one idea in it. Um, oh, well, no, her her three precepts for how to, to sort of deal with your anxiety over stuff is to, one, clean it up all at once don't try and do it piecemeal otherwise you're perpetually cleaning so you have to kind of tackle it in one go which strangely I think is backed up by the the medical literature often one of the difficulties of dealing with hoarding is a as a pathology, is that it's it's hugely labour intensive for for all involved, including the, the the hoarder, but also the the you know agency workers and psychiatrists, because you have to sit there with sort of three or four people and kind of present each object one at a time and ask those kinds of Mary Kondo-ish questions and say you know is this going to be useful to you? Does it bring you joy? Uh, you know, etc. Can you part with it? And eventually, the idea is that in a sort of CBT fashion, those questions are internalized and the hoarder can do that work on their own. But Mary Kondo says you, you basically got to do it in a week or in a long in a long weekend or and tackle your whole house that's the first precept the second thing is that everything has to have um a space in the home you know a a location and it must always be returned to that space so piles are out and dumping you know the kind of the kind of drawers that we all have with where we put the phone chargers and the and the stamps and the pins and everything else they they're certainly not acceptable to the condo method and the final one is, as you say, does this bring you joy? Or have you used it in the last year, I think she says, as well. So she does have a utilitarian defence for certain things too. But um, yeah, I, I really don't think any of those questions would be useful to my dad, who doesn't know whether that pile what might be useful for a programme 10 years hence, or and
0: also everything, as you say, has its place. It's kind of well, he (laughs) knows everything is (laughs) in the middle of this pile is that is the space for that thing, so
1: exactly, yeah, exactly. And the piles do have a logic to them, and even if no one else can understand them, I remember a a story that my mum tells of when they first moved in together in London, and he he went to work, and she decided that the piles of books on his you know living room floor were far too disorderly and she tidied them up and they didn't speak for a week or something afterwards cuz she you know shuffled them in the wrong order and and obviously that's impossible to live with and and part i suppose partly the difficulty of hoarding is that within families and within relationships it can people pull in different directions in terms of how much stuff they're willing to tolerate but in, in also in terms of how organized those things could be but yeah as a as a as a as a metaphor for the organized chaos of my dad's hoard i think it's it's a it's it's a true one and in terms of explanatory frameworks for it all. I mean, you talk about psychoanalysis
0: as well. So after, you know, the railroad spike in the head, there's also, and uh, Freud may have been a hoarder himself.
1: Yeah, well, he certainly had a, a, you know, he certainly had a collector's instinct that that verged on the hoard, I think, at times. He describes, you know, having to move stuff off the, the couch before people can lie on it. And and I mean, h- how much of that is to do with is sort of the end of Victorian interior design and and the rise of modernist minimalism, making it feel unacceptable i think is an interesting question so the kind of aesthetics of hoarding i think also undergo real changes in the 20th century and make it less acceptable to fill your house with junk or or indeed with stuff knickknacks and and um i remember my grandmother who was who was very much not a hoarder she had a very you know a clean house but it was it was full of very carefully arranged Porcelain boxes, Halcyon Day boxes. They were, I suppose, snuff boxes, or I don't know what they were originally intended to be, but they they were these collectibles that she was convinced were worth a fortune, and now you see on eBay they're sort of a quid each or whatever. But she used to get one, you know, every Christmas from my grandfather and display it very, very properly on a doily somewhere, and that kind of filling a house with that kind of stuff, I think, is is probably. I don't know, you know, I, I think Freud's stuff was a lot more interesting than Halcyon Day's boxes probably, but it stemmed from a similar impulse. I think they were arranged. But yeah, that, that, that metaphor of the mind is a, is a stuff-filled thing that needs arranging, that, needs, um, that you need to kind of fiddle around in the archive and pull up the pertinent document or the pertinent object or piece of information, and that's what psychoanalysis does, and tells a story about the mess of our minds that makes that mess feel more navigable, feel more understandable, is a really compelling one that that, that Adam Phillips draws out in his essay on, on, on The Hoarder. And that I think Freud was probably in sympathy with, you know, he he, he he certainly had a lot of stuff and probably had to think about where it was. And, I mean, and is there a
0: sense, I mean, maybe this is pushing it too far, the idea that you can hoard, I mean, you mentioned Nicholson Baker earlier, and there's a sense in which his books, I mean, his his way of writing is kind of almost like a hoarder's way of writing that lists and and i don't know i mean could you say that freud hoarded case studies or there is an idea that there are ways of
1: not just i think not just not just in terms of you know hoarding individual case studies but i think the very act of writing as you say is is a hoarder's act i I mean i near i did try and write this in the piece but it ended up on the cutting room floor which is i suppose another act of 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 hoarding but the idea that you know i don't know everyone writes differently i'm sure but my tendency as i suggest in, in the introduction to the to the essay is to kind of accumulate massive amounts of information far too much about a subject you know buy all the books that might be remotely appropriate or relevant fill it them but in a pretty grand you know take as much as you can out. so I end up with this massive document that's you know often five ten times as long as the eventual piece will be and then shuffle it around read it think about it cut things out arrange it in some way and so there's that just as psychoanalysis tries to do that with minds and cleaners and merry Kondo types try and do that with stuff I think so too do writers often try and do that especially in non-fiction with their material you 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 have to winnow it down you have to think about organization and, and often the hoard itself is much more exciting than the finished piece you know you have those little snippets that that didn't make it in that you're like ah, why couldn't I have found a home for that but I mean the I mean so non- I think it's true of fiction as well I
0: mean there's you know the bit in Tristram Shandy where Stern says I don't know how, how am I ever going to write this because I'm already however many volumes in and I haven't even been born yet <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the process yeah, of writing a life takes is long takes longer <laughs> takes longer than living a life so how can you ever write yeah. it? or you know Ulysses it's what it's one day and yet it's this, well yeah I,
1: few, have, I was gonna say I, I did again another thing that I touched on the piece but I think is worth thinking about more is the is, is the relationship between sort of m- not just modernity and hoarding, but modernism and hoarding, partly to do with our changed relationship with objects themselves. So if you think of the way in which Duchamp and others in the visual arts reassess our relationship with mass-produced objects and and take them seriously that's kind of a hoarder's instinct i think what is it to take a fountain to take a urinal and call it a fountain other than a kind of hoarder's act to say here's this thing that everyone else thinks is valueless and yet i'm displaying it on a plinth and taking it seriously um but of course yeah you're right in literature the the sort of maximalist model of modernism in in joyce and and indeed in gertrude stein and others is is about accumulation is about what happens to the novel when we try and keep everything in not winnow it down and i suppose modernism pulls in both directions as we've already said the the sort of minimalist impulses of 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 a a kind of simplification of design that you get in in architecture and 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 a poetics of it of what imagism and so on doing away with the extraneous is, is is the opposite but they still have their origin i would argue in this sense of the world being filled with things and we have to think of a new relationship with those things be they physical objects or emotional states or individuals or minds and that seems to be congruent with the kinds of questions asked by hoarders. So hoarding is a form of performance art almost or or literary creation is I think how I would dignify the process.
0: And a way of not being sort of paradoxically the world or the amount of stuff there is it's overwhelming and how do we take control of this not to be overwhelmed but if you but if your response to not being overwhelmed is to fill your house with so much stuff you can't move through it then
1: well is it is it the case that you know now the world is literally filled with human remains that that's what one definition of the anthropocene might be that it's just become a big horde you know whether you go to the bottom of the mariana trench or climb the himalayas you'll find a scrap of plastic or a microplastic or whatever it might be, and that 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 seems to be it's it's harrowing and terrifying, of course, but it also seems to be the sort of end point of a certain kind of relationship with with the planet we inhabit, where human beings have put their stuff everywhere. the, the world is just a bit a big hoard now. As a working definition of the Anthropocene, there's there's a kind of perverse comfort to that if you were a hoarder to say, yeah, I'll never be far from my stuff because wherever I go, my stuff is. You know that Flanders and Swans song about the broken bedstead where whatever bog you go to, wherever you go in the land, in Britain anyway, and you find a this, an old canal or a mill pond or whatever, there'll always be a broken bedstead there. And that sentiment, I think, I mean, of course, the objects have changed. It's probably more likely to be one of those mass produced plastic white garden chairs now or an AOL CD or something. But that that sense of the blanketing of, of the world in, in our remains is... I don't know, it's it's terrifying from an environmental perspective, but sort of weirdly comforting from a psychological one, I always think.
0: John Day, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read John's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Ariane Chavisi on Brains and Gender, Helen Taventiran on T.S. Eliot After the Wasteland, and Colin Burrow on the new Yale Book of Quotations. Next week, I'll be talking to James Butler about our new Prime Minister. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes, the music is by Kieran Brunt, I'm Thomas Jones.